potent. It's just this amazing place. It's fascinating. It's yours for the asking. And that is incredible. Plus, it's cool. Welcome to Houghton 75. I'm James Capobianco. And I'm Hannah Farello. Houghton Library opened its doors at Harvard in 1942. Throughout 2017, we're celebrating the library's world-class collections and support of research and teaching over the last 75 years. This podcast is only one of the ways to participate in our year-long program of events that promises a unique glimpse of some of Houghton's most treasured holdings and the way they inspire scholars and students. Visit Houghton75.org for more information. Did you know that the phrase amp it up is a tribute to a 19th century French scientist? The term amp refers to André-Marie Ampère, a physicist who founded the study of electrodynamics or electromagnetism. He also developed a technique for measuring electricity, leading to our name for a single unit of electric current, the ampere or amp. We spoke with Alex Cesar, associate professor of the history of science here at Harvard, about his research on Ampère's electromagnetic experiments and received a bonus lesson about Ampère's equally remarkable experiments in scientific publishing. Ampère got going in the field of electricity in about 1820. Before that, he was as much a philosopher and a jack of all intellectual trades as anything else. He was deeply interested in the unity of nature, as many philosophers and even natural philosophers at the time were. In about 1820, a scientist elsewhere, Hans Christian Ersted, had realized there was some interesting connection between magnetic phenomena and electrical currents. And this got Ampere really excited because it suggested that these two forces in nature might actually be one. So he immediately started experimenting in a big way on electrical currents and magnets. And he immediately realized all sorts of interesting things. He realized that if you took two wires carrying currents, they could attract one another or deflect one another in complex ways, suggesting there was some sort of magnetic phenomenon going on. He realized he could create a bar magnet or something that acted like a bar magnet simply by taking an electrical current and winding it in a loop. So he created basically the first electromagnet. And this led him to even more complex experiments in which he attempted to come up with a general theory of electromagnetism, what he called electrodynamics. Naturally, Ampere wanted to formally announce and publish his discoveries. This was groundbreaking science. If Ampere didn't make a claim quickly, someone else may beat him to it. But writing a book takes time, and then you have to find a publisher. Luckily for Ampere, the 19th century brought about a new publishing option for scholarly authors. He wanted to get this out there very quickly because everybody was doing experiments on the same topic. So he started publishing journal articles all over the place. This was just the moment where you could start doing this because a multiplicity of journals was actually a new thing at this time. There was a snag, however, in that publishing journal articles was great to get it out there that you had done something. But if you wanted a general literary reputation, which a lot of savants did, you would still want to publish a book to get things together into a totality, into a whole. And that's sort of what led to this book. 
Ampère would publish these journal articles, but he would ask the printers and publishers of the journals to produce hundreds and hundreds of extra copies. And he would ask them to do this in a very specific way. He asked them to use a very particular style of pagination, where there would be a parentheses centered at the top of the page with the number. He asked them to start at a particular page number and to use generally a certain kind of format, a certain size of the book. And this more or less worked. As he published each journal article, he told the next editor what page number to use. And slowly, over about three years, he produced what looked very much like a book. And then he had another printer print up title page and table of contents. He assembled it all, and then he sent it out across Europe. And he even put it on sale with various booksellers. Requesting extra copies or off-prints of published journal articles was a very common practice. Authors wanted these off-prints so that they could distribute them to their friends, colleagues, and rivals who were not subscribed to the journal. The type was already set, so it wouldn't have been difficult for the printer to make a few extras, and small edits such as pagination would not have been difficult to accommodate. But using off-prints for a full volume must have required a great deal of organization for Ampere. Unsurprisingly, there is evidence of a few snags Ampere encountered along the way. The title of the book, which as you can see, is, is actually kind of long. In English, it's a collection of electrodynamic observations containing diverse memoirs, notices, extracts of letters, periodical works, etc., etc., etc. It's not entirely secret that this is a collection. What's perhaps a little more hard to tell is that it's not simply a sort of book of collected works, which is a common enough thing even at this time. It's that it physically is a collection of different publications. Even more interesting is the verso facing, where it says that this work can be found at the following booksellers and lists various booksellers in various mm -hmm. European cities, which suggests that indeed it was available to be bought. It wasn't simply something that Ampere sent around. And then there's a very interesting note. It says, people who have copies of this book that are incomplete can send it back to their bookseller and have them exchanged at no cost for complete versions, which is not something you usually see. And indeed, no. why does it exist? It's because Ampere realizes that there's going to be trouble in actually assembling this yeah. and making it work. And indeed, when you look at different copies of this book, they're almost never exactly the same. They're always a little weird and different. Even the ones like this one here that we're looking at, which seem to be complete and regular, there's still some strange things. For instance, if you go to the back of the book, here's the table of contents. It ends with this last little thing here on page 354, Observation Editionnelle par Monsieur Ampère. We can go to that, 354, and there it is. But then when you get to the end of it, you find that the end is page 364, and there's another article at three, page 365. Oh, and that's not in the table of contents, which suggests that he published something else through the same scheme, but he'd already sent the table of contents yeah. to the printer, and he yeah. couldn't change it. Although brilliant, this scheme does seem a little unsavory. But Ampère wasn't the only famous scientist publishing his work as off-prints. Apparently, this was a common practice. There are some other examples I've found, but they aren't quite like this. The most famous one that I know of is another famous French naturalist, Georges Cuvier, a famous comparative anatomist, probably the most powerful savant in France when Ampère was doing this. Cuvier did something very similar in the 1810s, he put together off-prints and then sold and distributed the resulting book. It was a book about the fossil bones of quadrupeds. However, if you look at that book, it looks very different from this. 
Cuvier made no attempt to get the page numbers right. He made no attempt to make the pages really line up. He did, however, print a preface and a title page and a table of contents. But if you look at it, it looks like what it is. It's a collection of off-prints put together in a pretty ragtag way and then distributed. That particular technique isn't so uncommon. Again, because there was this urge to publish large unified treatments of things, many naturalists published articles in series. They would be called Experimental Researches 1, Experimental Researches 2, Experimental Researches 3, and they would come out in various periodicals, and readers themselves would often put them together. Again, off-prints being sent around were very, very common. You might argue that distributing your work through off-prints that you got from a journal was one of the main reasons you would publish something in a journal. Because who actually subscribed to all of these journals that were showing up? Very few people. And you wanted to make sure the right people got them. You would ask for a lot of off-prints in order to distribute them to your friends and to mentors and to competitors in the form of these little pamphlets. Ampere did that as well, but he went one step further by putting them all together and distributing themselves in this way. Publishing by parts was very common in the sciences, again, because it was very risky to publish a whole book. It would have been very difficult, or it could have been difficult for Ampere to convince a publisher to publish a whole book and send it out. This way he could do it himself, he could do it cheaply, and with basically no risk. This book is an artifact of a transitional time in publishing history. Scholarly journals, so familiar to us today, were just starting to gain popularity. Books, of course, were and remained important, but their role was shifting. According to Professor Cesar, the shifting publishing landscape led to a major change in the sharing of scientific information. This book, in many ways, encapsulates one of the main ideas I've been trying to put forward in my own work. It encapsulates a major transition in the way in which savants thought about how to put their work out there, and indeed what was worth putting out into the world as a scientific finding. When Ampere wrote this book, and when Ampere sort of came of age as a savant, what often mattered was a big discovery claim of some kind, some sort of theory of the world. And that's very much what Ampere, this dedicated romantic philosopher, wanted to produce. He wanted to produce a kind of theory of the world, a unified theory of nature in some ways. And books are much better for that than little articles. On the other hand, all these journals, these commercial scientific journals, had begun to proliferate everywhere. And they were great if you wanted to stake your claim to some sort of small discovery claim. And so Ampere used them all the time in order to say, I've done this, pay attention, this is something that I deserve credit for. This was in sort of tension with this urge to publish books. So this book in many ways represents the awkward coming together of these two movements, where Ampere wanted to, in some sense, do both of these things at the same time, create a unified theory of the world and get his work out there as fast as possible. In my own work, I take this for granted, but it's not obvious that looking at the actual material objects in the case of the history of science would tell you anything. Mm. When we do literary history, there's a lot of people who focus on the books themselves because it's yeah. supposed to be all about books. But history of science is supposed to be about knowledge, abstract ideas, equations, formulas. But actually you learn a lot about how people thought about knowledge and science by looking very closely at the books themselves. And this book by Ampere is a really, really amazing example of this. We'd like to thank Professor Alex Cesar for joining us and sharing his detailed knowledge of Ampere and scientific publishing with us today. We are now so accustomed to scholarly journals and articles, it's fascinating to think of a time when these vital publications were just starting to circulate. 
The music you've heard throughout the podcast was a selection of science-inspired electronic and experimental pieces by Dara Oshada. They can all be found on SoundCloud and are used here through Creative Commons licenses. If you would like to take a closer look at Ampere's Book of Offprints, or any of the other exciting items on display in HIST 75H, a masterclass on Houghton Library, check out our online exhibition at houghton75.org. Although the physical exhibition is now closed, you are always welcome to visit the library and request to view Ampere's book or other collection material in our reading room. If you would like to view podcast transcripts or detailed musical notes, please visit houghton75.org podcast. Thanks as always for listening. And whether you're tuning in from near or far, we hope you'll join us again for next week's episode of Houghton 75.